We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I'm your host, Jethro Jones, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, a professional development publisher serving as the global leader in combining both research and practice in all materials. Find timely PD publications to support yourself and your faculty by visiting them online at us.johncatbookshop.com. Great instruction gets students engaged. TeachFX equips teachers with the instructional strategies and job-embedded feedback they need to get students engaged in virtual or in-person classes. Learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer at teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am excited to have PJ Capozzi on the program today. You may know him on Twitter as MCUSD Soupt, and he is a dynamic speaker and a transformational leader and educator. He began his career as an award-winning teacher in the inner city of Chicago and has subsequently led significant change in every administrative post he has held. He became a principal at 28 and within three years was able to lead a small town rural school, historically achieving near the bottom of its county to multiple national recognitions. After four years, PJ moved to his current district, Meridian CUSD 223, where he is the eighth year in his eighth year as a superintendent and has led a similar turnaround, leading to multiple national recognitions for multiple different efforts. He's written eight books for various publishers, and PJ's work has been published online in ASCD, Edutopia, NPR, Washington Post, and the Huffington Post. He works in the education department two universities and with the Illinois Principals Association, including Principal Coach, and he is the author of the first complete stack of micro credentials offered in Illinois. 
he and his wife have four children and live in Northern Illinois, where his wife is also an educator. PJ, welcome to Transformative Principle. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, and if you can believe it, I actually had to cut stuff out of your bio because you've done so much, and that's super impressive. It's a blessing and a curse hearing the bio, especially before you go on a stage. It's like, like all right, you, know, like, you never know what someone's going to cut or not cut. So when they don't cut anything, it's, I don't know, it's intimidating and it's, it's weird, right? Like it's, you don't do anything for any, you don't do any of the work for any of the reasons that it seems like when someone reads your bio, uh, you do the work because you want to contribute and impact the profession and, and leave a positive legacy on behalf of kids and the, the other educators. Uh, but when you read the list of, of stuff, sometimes it's, I don't know. It, it, it feels weird. I, I just know that it feels weird. Yeah, it, it certainly can feel that way. And what I find really impressive is that there's there's a bunch of things that your school's been recognized for and that you personally have been recognized for. And and as you said, you're not doing it for those accolades, but those accolades do end up coming, which is which is a pretty cool thing to experience. So congratulations on that. Um, that all being said, you've done a ton. You've been a leader at a young age and have had a lot of experiences. What made you want to go into education to start and why, what's been pushing you to stay there? Yeah. So the origin story of going into education is it was always something that was, I was considering uh, more from the aspect of I wanted to coach than uh, necessarily I wanted to teach. Uh, When I was uh, 17 years old, I was diagnosed with cancer and had to take the year off of school. And at that point, I had um, several teachers, but one in particular really step up and go above and beyond uh, to help me through AP math, because AP math is hard for a tutor to teach at home. And at that moment, I saw the difference like a teacher can make on someone's life, because up until that point, like I have two amazing parents. I was like a sitcom the way I was raised, like I had every privilege possible. So teachers were like, and I liked school, but they weren't vital to me being successful until they were. And then I had somebody that was, and then I wanted to do that. And so that's that's how I went into education uh, because of Ron Sawin, just to say his name, if he's in case he ever would happen to listen. It was, it was you, Mr. Sawin, now Dr. Sawin, was that kind of that okay. lever to push me into the profession. Why I say the profession, I think I have the best job in the world. I think on any given day, I get the ability to change the trajectory of kids' lives with the decisions that we make. And now that I'm a superintendent, that's a little bit more distant, unfortunately. My interaction with kids is a little bit less, but still the same. And if I can impact the trajectory of adults' lives, then it's going to impact how they serve kids. Um, so the impact and legacy you can leave as an educator, I think, is is nearly unmatched. I, I sincerely believe that. Like When people talk about retirement, like the idea of retirement is enticing, but like I have no idea what I would possibly do other than just keep doing this. Uh, because I enjoy my work now. I mean, I could deal without board meetings and some of those things, but for the most part, I love the work. Yeah, that's that's really good. So we're going to talk today about um, what you think is one of the worst ROI investments a school can make, which is teacher evaluation. So uh, let's start that out by talking about why you think that is the way we do it is such a bad idea. So I'll start by saying I love teacher evaluation when I'm performing it. Now, I don't think I've got a secret sauce um, or anything of that nature, but um, when we talk, when I talk to teachers and when I talk to principals, the vast majority of the time, what they would articulate to me is that the process is incredibly resource intensive, that resource most namely being their time. 
and stressful and very seldomly leads to true school improvement at large and at the more micro level to true teacher improvement. So when I, I started the conversation, when I started doing my research on teacher evaluation with like 20 teachers that I thought were really, really good teachers. And I said over time, so I sat them down and I said, when was the last time you had an evaluation that really helped you grow? And crickets. And I said, well, has there ever been a time? And some people pointed out to, well, early in my career, this was said or that was said. But the majority of the time, they just indicated that their growth and their success wasn't dependent upon the evaluation process. So if we couple that we have, like even in a small district like mine, where we've got 110 teachers, like thousands of hours a year invested into the teacher evaluation process that largely doesn't build up staff morale or climate and wears out our administrators without really improving the practice, then then we have to ask ourselves what we're doing. If you ask at the macro like policy level, why do we evaluate teachers? There's two reasons. One, people are going to say it's going to improve their professional practice to get feedback. And I think that what I just kind of did was discredit that. Like I think it certainly can. I think in some cases it does, but I'd say at large it doesn't. And the second thing it does is sort teachers, which it puts them into groups and it says who we can retain and who we're going to fire. And our national data usually hovers between 95 and 98% of teachers are proficient. So we're not even using it to do that. So on both of its key functions, it's not performing. And yet we haven't even gotten into the resources spent in training and development, uh, which I think can be really meaningful if it's done the right way. But it's a really, it's a compliance-driven initiative uh, that I think makes policy makers feel like they're doing something important and, and impactful and is really not doing any significant benefit to our schools at large in our country. Yeah. So let's talk about that idea first of almost everybody's proficient, you know, 95 to 98% is, you know, pretty close to what I've heard as well. In in the business world, they say hire slow and fire fast. And education, it's like it's backwards. We hire fast, maybe sometimes one interview with a teacher, and and that's it. I've certainly had to do that numerous times. And so we do it the opposite. We hire fast, and then we fire really slow. And the evaluation process you know, can take a full calendar year to remove somebody from a position through that process. And so that's just one very small, tiny, narrow aspect of evaluation. I think we justify it to ourselves to say, well, we need to be able to get rid of people and use the evaluation to do that when we have bad teachers. Um, but that process is so slow and so long that if that if we really need to remove someone who's not a great teacher, that's like the worst way to do it because it's so difficult to do. So on that piece, how does hiring and firing work into that teacher evaluation process? So I think the first, well, let's start with firing because it's, I think, more interesting to talk about. So first <laughs> of all, a district, and this stems from the board to the superintendent to the principals, would first even have to be willing to consider the process. And so if we're unwilling to even consider the process, then what are we even talking about? Right. And then second, if we're going to go through that process, the vast majority of teachers that I've seen let go, and this isn't first or second year tenured people where we're still kind of sorting, but once we're, we're an established teacher, the vast majority of teachers, I would say, are are insubordinate more likely than being ineffective at teaching practices. In which case, it beckons back the question, if they're going to be insubordinate, then just discipline them out as opposed to work through this year-long, arduous evaluation remediation process. I Now, I have seen like maybe twice in my career, and that, this isn't just my districts, this is with all the work I've done throughout the country, 
people that have been remediated that have then turned into like key elements of school success in the future. So like, I do think it is possible. I do also know of teachers that didn't fit or weren't quite right in a given district that come to another district and have a rebirth. So I think both of those things are possible. They are just so much the exception mm-hmm. and not the rule um, that I think the entire process needs to be questioned, right? Like, again, if you used a business analogy to start, which I love, when we're looking at the investment we're making versus the return in any other industry, we look at this and be like, whoa, this is broken. We, we need to stop this immediately. It's not causing the results it set out to cause. We'd question that. And in education, everyone just kind of cusses at the process and mm-hmm. no one's doing anything to change it. And so the work that I've done is largely around, okay, if you're unwilling to change the process at the macro, how can we improve it at the micro? Because I do think there's some things we can do. Again, it's systematizing the individual work, which obviously is like that's the task of education. That's why it's fun, but that's also why it's really hard. Yeah, I, I really like that approach. If you're unwilling to change at the macro, then we can do something to change at the micro. I think that's really an important way to look at it because like so many other things in education, it really comes down to the relationships and the connections that you have with the people that you're working with. And if you can't focus on that and you're just going through the checklist or going through the process to to get it all done, then it becomes a dehumanizing process that nobody really cares to participate in. And, you know, I had a a teacher who I think I've shared this on the podcast before, but she resigned from the school after we implemented a new evaluation system that assigned everybody a number basically and graded them. And she just thought that was so, so wrong in so many ways. And she started adding to her email signature, her score on the evaluation to just kind of like passive aggressively put it back in everybody's face. And yeah, (laughs) and and I think it was it was really interesting to to recognize from learning through that process with her that she felt she was a veteran teacher, been around for a long time. And it really goes to that idea that, you know, they're more often insubordinate than ineffective. And that was what her issue is. But that was able to be brought out through the evaluation process. And I don't think that I handled that perfectly. And I think um, I could have done a lot better. And I've learned since then. But that's the the approach that I should have taken with her is not worried about her teaching because she was a great teacher, but worried more about her her attitude and and insubordination and that kind of stuff because that's where the real issue was. And so um, so I think that when you have those kinds of situations, it's it's good to look at what the purpose is and then make more effective efforts in that direction. As you were saying that, the thought that kept going through my mind is that if we are waiting holistically to have the difficult conversation that we've been wanting to have all year or sometimes on a two-year cycle until the evaluation process, I just keep thinking about all the opportunities lost. And so I'm not saying that's the, the case for you, but I can certainly say in some of the evaluations I review for my district and other districts that it is very clear that the administrator has been holding this event from September of, of 2019, they're going to get it in writing when it comes. And it has, wasn't always addressed in, in real time, right? Like, so we've missed our chance for growth, which I think is also becomes a de facto function of evaluation, which of course then makes teachers hate it. And so if we're going to use the one bullet we have from 15 months ago um, to tear down a teacher, then is that process really about growth at that point? Like, that's the question I think we need to ask ourselves. 
Yeah, let's talk about what that looks like with it being about growth. If we really want it to be a growth, what is what does that actually look like and how do we do it differently? And let me preface this with this idea of we've taken a more systemic and factory approach to evaluations. I feel like we've gotten further and further away from that, that our evaluations don't really allow for some of that growth to happen you know, it, as data intensive as they are. I'm looking at you, Danielson and Marzano, because they inhibit that because it's all about the data and it's not about the individual growth. So how do we make it more focused on growth? Well, I will say that what I find in the majority, so one of the things that I do for districts is I'll do like an evaluation audit or an assessment where I read all of their evaluations for a given year. What tends to happen is two things that would go to counter growth and then I'll get into how I think we add it. And so if you're an evaluator, and I call you out on this, like this is typical around the, the, the country. The suggestions for improvement where it should be about growth are might, may as well be copy and pasted. because, And that doesn't mean that you are being lazy. It just means that as an evaluator, you have a go-to two or three suggestions for improvement that then show up over and over and over again. Um, so for me, that indicates there's probably a depth of knowledge issue on the evaluator standpoint. But if we're doing that, then I think that we have some issues that we need to work on again, systematically. The second thing is that depending on what your state evaluation timeline is, so in Illinois, like everything should be done by mid-February to end of February, the evaluations that are getting concluded in February are much thinner than the ones getting completed in November, just because people's timelines stack up and life happens. And so people are getting much less comprehensive feedback about growth at that point. So the number one thing that I think needs to shift in terms of evaluation to make it a more meaningful process is the pre-conference, which I know sounds really weird because it's the thing that most people, I think, just skirt right over the top. So when I look at most pre-conferences or if I sit in with an evaluator and observe a pre-conference, they're like 12 minutes and they ask the same eight questions that Danielson had at the beginning of her book a decade and a half ago. You know, what are the objectives? You know, where do you want me to sit? Uh, Anything I should be looking for? Like, it's all the same stock questions. John Cat Educational supports high-quality teaching and learning by providing publications that are research-based, practical, and focused on the key topics proven essential in today's and tomorrow's schools. The latest John Cat publications include a book whose bold, transformative ideas amaze and infuriate people around the world, according to one reviewer, a title from Global Leaders in Curriculum Planning, Practice, and Retrieval, one book that says Stop Talking and Start Doing with Regard to Teacher Well-Being, and much more. These books, used by educators of all roles across North America and worldwide, amplify fresh, engaging voices with practical strategies to create transformative change. Learn more in our show notes at jethrojones.com slash podcast. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose professional learning platform doubles student engagement online or in person. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. I created a new podcast with my friend Frederick Lane called Cybertraps. We are exploring the myriad risks and adverse consequences that can arise from the use and misuse of digital devices and electronic communication tools. Please subscribe to the Cybertraps podcast, and if you like it, please give us a rating. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Eric Stevens on the value of identity and being ethical in our work with underserved populations. If I approach my research 
with the intention of helping a group of people, but I'm using the data that they themselves have created and have been replicated by their, their own personal identity, replicated over and over and over and over. My research is already flawed ethically. Some people, that's not a big thing. For me, it was problematic because I didn't want to feel like I was exploiting people, but I still wanted to help. What I ended up creating was I wanted to understand the prison system at the language level across time um, and across space in the United States. Um, Basically, I wanted to understand if we send a person to prison, we're sending them to a correctional facility um, with correctional officers. And we give them handbooks to say, hey, this is what you should be doing. What I wanted to answer was at the language level with the technical documents that we hand to um, an inmate, what are we correcting them to? To what standard are we asking them to be at the language level? Check out more from this interview at cybertraps.com slash seven. To me, the pre-conference should be focusing on the why questions and not the what questions and maybe the how, right? Like how can be in the middle, but the majority are what are kids going to be doing? What are you going to be doing? What am I going to be doing? And when we get into the whole problem with the evaluation, why I think it doesn't work is because we fo- we stay at that level. And so when we don't get to the why level, any of the suggestions that we provide are just going to be band-aids. Right? Like, so the one that I give, the example I give when I talk all the time, and there's tweets to this, like, again, passive aggressive and assertive treats on this end is, well, my superintendent, my principal, my evaluator told me to put the uh, objective on the board. Now I'm a better teacher, right? Like, so, and I'm on the side, I'm an objective on the board guy, but that's just, that's a different conversation. But uh, if you don't know why you're putting the objective on the board, if you don't know why that's important, you don't know what research support that, you don't know how that triggers learning for the kid then whatever you do doesn't matter because what's going to happen is you're going to have teachers like me when I was a teacher or my wife when she was a teacher that are going to be compliant and just do what you tell me. But if I don't understand why I'm doing that, then my practice doesn't really improve. And over time, that's going to slip when there's an evaluator that doesn't hold me accountable for it. And so that's the entire, like that's the microcosm of the entire evaluation experience for most teachers is all right, I survived it. I got told to do these two things. I'm going to do these two things because I'm going to jump through that hoop. And my practice doesn't significantly or substantially change. And if we do that, then schools aren't going to get better. It's not a practice to improve schools. But if we have like a few deep, meaningful conversations about why, then that teacher's, like, again, that trajectory of that teacher's career could change based on the feedback you give them or not. Trust me, there's no complex here that I think these conversations, it's it's just like the conversations we have with kids, right? Like if 8% of them stick, we did amazing. So it's not like we're trying to bat 100% on these life-changing, career-altering conversations, but that doesn't forgive us the responsibility of trying to have them. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the idea of putting the objective on the board because I've got a great story to illustrate that. In this same school where that teacher was, we're saying you should have the objective up on the board. And when the training was done before I got there, it was a checkbox. And so that's what everybody did. They actually printed out 
their standards, like they're from the Alaska State Common Core or whatever it was, and the Alaska State standards, they printed those out and they put them up on their wall. And if we, we were lucky, they would move a little arrow to the standard that they were working on that month. And literally, that's what it was. It was ridiculous. And so I, I started asking, what is a child going to learn as a result of being in your class today? That's the purpose of the of posting the objective on the board. I, I think that's important, but at the same time, I don't really care. If you know what your kid is supposed to learn, then that's great. It's better if they can know what they're supposed to learn. And I only had one teacher out of all my teachers who really bought into that idea. And she challenged me on it a bunch. But this is where it's leading to growth because the teacher who had her score in her signature, you know, it was just a checkbox. This other teacher, it really caused her to change how she was teaching because she had never been posed that question before. And that's where you're saying if you're not getting deep enough and not really understanding the why, then you know, there's not really going to be room for growth. So this other teacher, her name is Diane Grupp. She's awesome. She pushed back and said, well, I don't think I need to do that. I have my standards there and the kids can get it. And I said, okay, but like today, what should they get out of being in there today? And she said, well, it's not going to be very big. And I said, well, that's okay. Does it have to be big? What are they going to get out of being in your class? And once she changed how she thought about that, she she really started changing how she was teaching and and focusing more on on what the kids needed and then one time she came to me and said I don't want my kids to know what they're supposed to learn today so I'm not going to put an objective up and I said well why not and she said because it's an inquiry lesson and they need to figure out the rule and if I just tell them then that's not going to be the same as if they figure it out now talk about growth PJ because then she was like I'm going to change how I'm doing it to meet the needs of the kids, and that, and it's going to be there. That was a momentous occasion, and I was like, then you don't have to put the lesson objective up. Yep. It's great. Yep. So I've got a similar story like you had from your Alaska experience, and I'll, I'll say the, the gentleman's name because he's a he's become a close family friend, but Ken Scott was our driver's ed teacher. Now, his wife babysat our kids, so when I moved to town, they were like the first people to embrace us in the town that we moved in from kind of big city to small town. And so I was working hard on the objective on the board thing. And so I had all my teachers, except in everyone called them Kochi, except Kochi. And so I pull them aside. I'm like, Ken, look, you're my friend. Like, and I know that you're 65 years old and you can retire at any point, but could you do me a favor and just do this for me? It's like, yes. So the next time I come in for an informal observation, the objective's on the board. And like, I'm texting my friends. I'm like, it happened. It worked. I come in like a month later, same exact objectives on the board. It was a small victory. And then just as a side note, what I've encouraged teachers to do in in the last handful of years, and this is kind of based on what Hattie has discovered is I encourage people to do kind of same thing. What, how, why with their objective. So the, what is what the objective has always been. The how is how the student is going to show you mastery over time. So if, if we're going to want the student to be able to assess their progress toward mastery on a given thing, they should know how they're going to show mastery at that time. Then the why is the relevancy. Um, so that goes back to the Daggett from, from years and years and years ago with rigor and relevance framework. Um, but if, if we should be catering to our kids, let them know what they should learn in a class, how they're going to demonstrate it for us later, and why it's important for them to be successful in the future. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about teachers observing each other versus the principal just observing teachers. What is the way to ensure that that observation from 
other teachers it leads to growth as well because I really think that's the missing piece. It's all well and good for a principal to go observe teachers, but you probably experienced this also, especially being a principal. I was a young principal as well, and I became a much better teacher after going and doing observations a whole bunch. So how do we pull teachers observing each other and giving each other feedback into our evaluation systems? So I think it's shockingly hard. So, I mean, I'll start there. For us in the district I'm currently in, that we have incentivized it in just about every possible way to get teachers into other teachers' classrooms. And right now it's super hard. So 2020, you know, notwithstanding, but um, we've had limited success in trying to make this cultural. So we have it happening a lot. It's just not part of who we are right now. And if we weren't incentivizing it through different platforms and if you observe someone else's lesson, then I'll cover another one of your prep periods or whatever the case is we're trying to get people. So it has to become cultural. Now, that said, the people that do it have found a tremendous amount of success in it. And I think the other thing which we have found is when our teachers have done this process in different districts, it's also been really, really successful because in, in both ways, one, they figure out, wow, we're not, maybe we're not pushing kids hard enough because when I look at this district they're doing, or wow, I don't have it so bad. Like maybe my principal is not such a jerk. Like I think it's just provided some context, especially for our lifers that have been here. But we haven't had a tremendous amount of success in making it a cultural thing that just happens without administrative uh, stimulus. Now, I think the middle ground is instructional coaching, right? Like, so we can hire instructional coaches and get our coaches into the classroom and have them um, be successful in terms of that. What we have had a hard time doing with that, and, and again, I think we've had success, is that they are pretty quickly seen as middle management, especially in small districts. If you have a big enough district that there's insulation where they're not like the next layer, but for us, it's been very hard to make sure that they're not perceived as an arm of administration in, in doing our work on behalf of them. So we are very fortunate in the last couple of years that we've had our union administration applied to and became uh, instructional coaches. And that has been great for us because there's the natural buffer or perceived buffer uh, that, that existed previously, but wasn't believed. Now is maybe more believed or bought into. So for us, Again, I think that's it's a long-winded answer of sharing our experience. I think any feedback that is trusted and is about growth has a chance of having a greater impact than one that is evaluative and about rank and sort. And so while we haven't been able to get it to be a cultural norm, when it has occurred, I think it's been more impactful than when we have just, again, gone in with the mile-long Danielson collecting data and, you know, taking the data and then saying, oh, well, this is a this, this is a this, this is a this. And then people, again, I think when I use this terminology, I think it's they survive the process and then they don't worry about another for another year and nine months or whatever the case happens to be, which just means that the process of observation and feedback is not cultural in terms of what is going to help us grow. And, and I think that's, we're just wasting our greatest resource, right? If we believe we're instructional leaders as administration, and we believe we have instructional expertise. If our feedback is not given in a way that spurs growth, then all we are doing is creating conditions, right? Like, and so we can still create policies and protocols and conditions for growth, but we're losing out on this massive opportunity. Yeah, I've seen some really, some powerful teacher observations of each other that have led to growth. And you're right, it is really difficult to get it to that point. And I think not tying it into the evaluation system is really the way to ensure that that happens. 
And so one of the things that I've seen that's effective is giving people that time to do it. And in most schools, teachers have like a 30 minute to an hour long prep where they can take care of everything they need to take care of. Asking them to then spend that time to go observe somebody else is a big ask. And then the other problem is that teachers don't want to leave their students. And so if they're there, they don't want to be not teaching their kids. And so having them, you know, not teach to go observe somebody else is is a big ask as well, because they don't want somebody else to come in and teach their class when they could just be doing it themselves. So I think the biggest barrier to that, to be honest, is really setting up our schools so that teachers have the time to go and do that. And, and I've never worked in a school that where I had two prep periods, but I know there are schools where you, you have two different prep periods, and that's a, a good way to do that. The other thing I'd say about instructional coaches is that if you don't do that effort to make sure that they're not an arm of administration, then they're pretty much useless in my mind. Because if everybody just sees them as an arm of the administration, then nobody's going to trust them and nobody's going to want to grow. And, and that's a real, real issue. So you really have to set that up. And one of the things we did is we we talked about how our instructional coaches had confidentiality with teachers. We could tell them which teachers to work with, but they couldn't tell us what they were working on with those teachers other than to say, I'm doing what you've asked me to do. And so they didn't share their conversations with teachers with the administration. They didn't come back and report to us. And that went a long way to building that trust and support. And I I think that is really, it's just essential for that to work because otherwise, you know, they think that they are just spying on me for the administration. And, you know, once you have that idea in your teachers, then you've lost and there's no overcoming that. So the last question I want to ask PJ is what is one thing that a principal can do this week to be a transformative principal? So the advice would probably be non-evaluation specific, just given the world that we're living in right now. The thing that I find that most teachers are doing right now, and it's a term that Sean Aker uses a lot in his happiness work and, and the positive psychology work is moving the goalposts. And so if I were to, and I'll just use my teachers, my district as an example, if I were to tell, ask them, I could go back in time six weeks ago and said, six weeks into the school year, what would success look like? And they, what they would have written down is that my kids know that I, I care about them, that everyone is safe and well, and that we're doing the best that we can. And they are doing that 10 times over. And if I asked them at the, on Friday of last week, have we been successful so far? They'd be like, no, because they've learned so much more about hybrid learning or remote learning, and they want to do so much better on behalf of their kids. And that drive to make them better is what makes me so happy and proud to be in the district I'm in. But right now, they need to give themselves some grace and to quit moving the goalposts on themselves. Sometimes as a leader, we have to push. And other times, we have to, to pull back on the reins. I think that what we have to do is, I think if we're in about week six, seven, eight of the school year, it's time for us to say, okay, we, we have some things we want to accomplish this year and to be very specific and acute with what you're doing there and say that to do this, we just have to keep on the same path we're doing and to give your teachers some grace and to give yourself some grace in this because this is exhausting, difficult, tenuous work. I've had more teachers say that I feel like a first year teacher with 20 years experience this year than I've ever heard before. So to be transformative in this moment, um, I would just remind yourself that you're playing in a game that doesn't end at, in May of 2021. So if you plan on being the principal of your building for a long time or the superintendent or whatever you happen to be, 
what you need to do right now is give some grace, build some trust and build some relationships because that if, if you're cashing all the checks that you have and cashing in all the political capital you have in 2020, it's going to be really hard to lead in 21 and 22 and 23. Whereas if you're showing grace, building trust and building relationships and having people's back right now when they need it, then what do you need to push in 2021 when you're going to you know, institute initiative A, B or C? They're going to be there with you. But if you're trying to push too hard now, I think that it's a foolhardy proposition. Yeah, very good. So thank you again, PJ, for being part of Transformative Principle. Again, you can follow PJ on Twitter at M-C-U-S-D-S-U-P-T. And uh, thanks again for being part of this, PJ. It was awesome talking to you. It was awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Just It's S-U-P-E in case anyone cares. Oh, S-U-P-E. Excuse me. Yeah. Thank you. No yeah, problem. I will make sure I put that right on the show notes so that people click the link and go to the right place. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you to our valued partner, John Cat Educational. If you are a leader looking to make transformative change by providing yourself and your leaders and teachers with professional development that is research-based and rigorous, yet easy to digest and full of practical strategies, Check out the latest publications from John Cat. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com to find information on bulk orders or learn much more in our show notes. You can also use the code TRANSFORMATIVE to save a bundle at us.johncatbookshop.com. School principals across the country are using TeachFX's virtual PD and job-embedded feedback to boost student engagement during COVID. With TeachFX, teachers get eight times more feedback and generate 144% more student engagement on average in a school year with no additional work for school leaders or teachers. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com slash transformative principle. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E.